And we begin. We are in part nine of our series through the book of Isaiah called the Wake Up series. Today's message is entitled Wake Up to a Sovereign God. I don't know how many of you have uh, have ever sat down and read a book on the attributes of God. Uh, it's fascinating. If somebody wrote a book about someone that you were in love with, you'd probably read it. Right? Well, there's these books out there that chronicle out all these different pieces of God, different ways to look at God. For example, uh, A.W. Tozer has a book called The Attributes of God. It's right there on the title. It's not hard to find. And in there, he talks about what does it mean that God is omniscient, that God knows everything? How does that impact our lives? What do we need to know about that? How does that change everything? What about God is omnipotent, all-powerful? What does that mean? As God the Almighty, what does it mean that God is sovereign? What does it mean? And we go, you go through this book, and chapter by chapter, your view of God gets greater and greater and greater. J.I. Packer wrote the book, Knowing God. Very similar concept. So whatever author that is solid and legitimate that you can track with, get a hold of one of those books because our view of God is too small and that makes us very fearful and doubting people. May God be expanded and exalted and magnified in our minds, yeah? As I was looking at the topic for this message, the idea of the sovereignty of God, I began to reflect back on all the things that God has done through the centuries, both recorded in Scripture and not recorded in Scripture, biblical and extra-biblical concepts of how things have changed, how God has orchestrated world events. So as I'm looking at this, let's go through a quick read of biblical accounts God said stuff before it happened. God said stuff about babies before they came out of the womb. Who would be a great nation? What type of great nation? So let's, let's begin with Abraham. Now you remember Abraham's kind of the father of all Jewish people. But what you don't realize is he's pretty much the father of the entire Middle East. Right? Because he didn't just have Isaac, the promised child, his firstborn son's name was Ishmael. It is believed that he is the father of the Arab people. And remember that Abraham's sons were to be blessed and become numerous. Both sons had 12 princes come through their lineage. Now it went Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then the 12 hit. But Ishmael had 12 princes that came from his lineage. As these people became numerous, more numerous, understand that was said about Ishmael from the day he was born. Why? Because God orchestrated it. He says it about Isaac. He says that before this child is even conceived, you will have a child and his, the people that come from him will be more numerous than the sand of the seashore. How can God say something like that? Unless he is 100% in control. Then we go through and we see Jacob and Esau, right? Two twin brothers. While they're still in the womb, God lets them know there are two nations in the womb. There's not only the Jewish people in there through Jacob, but Esau are the Edomite people. They're a whole nation in and of themselves. And we just watch it happen over and over and over and over and over. But unfortunately, a lot of us believe that 
there is Bible history and then there's real history. It's like Bible is Narnia. You got to go in through the little, you know, wardrobe and it's a fake little world. And then there's real stuff on the outside. That is not true. This is all crisscrossing into real history, real places, things like that. Well, as I was looking out and about about the change in the world situation in just maybe a couple thousand years, let's go back a couple hundred years, I, I came across this funny blog and it was this guy recounting what was different between now and a hundred years ago in America. And he was recording stuff that happened in 1903. For example, uh, the average lifespan of an American adult in 1903 was 47 years old. If you go back to 1800, it was 35 years old. The majority of us are not alive, right? Do you understand that, <laughs> right? I don't even make the cut, okay, on that one. The other things that were kind of interesting was, you know, like only 8% had a bathtub, you know, and it was like women wash their hair once a month with borax or, you know, and I mean, it was like, just what is going on? Uh, 95% of all medical doctors had no college education. That's just scary stuff, right? The other thing that was funny was marijuana, heroin, and what was the other one? Uh, marijuana, her uh, heroin, and opium were over-the-counter drugs. <laughs> Which you just go, that's a terrible idea, right? And then he attached a little ad about heroin. It's like, makes the mind clear. You're like, uh, no, I don't, don't think it does, but all right. Think about uh, how our world has changed. Think about, you know, the uh, Columbus sailing the ocean blue going around. And I remember when we were first reading about that in school, in grade school, I'm learning about, you know, the discovery of America and uh, Columbus destroying people, stuff like that, right? And as I'm looking through this, I was like, who is the superpower that's launching out all these incredible explorers? And they're like, Spain. I was like, Spain? Spain's like a vacation destination. What do you mean Spain? Spain's nobody. Sorry to all the Spaniards listening to this. Here's the deal. All I know about your country is that there are bulls that run around in there. Right? I don't think of you as a world power, but at one time, you were a massive deal. As I walked through with my brother a number of years ago in Italy, it's all cute and wine country. Italy used to be a world power. Not just a little postcard thing. I, as I looked through, when I was growing up, everything was a Cold War. There were superpowers known as America and the USSR. Remember that? They were a big deal. Did you hear they broke up? <laughs> now everybody that's growing up, they're like, who? And they have no idea. Where, where did they go? You even look at maps and there's whole countries missing. They just disappear off the map. They get brought into something else. They get their name changed. Everything has changed. Now, granted, China is kind of a tricky one, right? I got corrected last night. I was making fun of the idea that China used to be the guys that made the toys. Now they own the world, right? And then somebody goes, well, just so you know, China's always run the world. And I was like, all right, I got you got me on that one, right? But here's what's intriguing is that you have these nations Babylon, the Babylonian kingdom, was massive. Now it's Iraq. The Persian kingdom, extraordinary. Now it's Iran. And you look and you go, wow, there's so much movement that goes on. And these nations that thought they were so awesome 
Alexander the Great ran Greece, who we've now had to bail out twice economically because they're such a poor run country. Come on, really? This who is orchestrating all this? I thought they were the biggest thing since sliced bread. I thought they were going to run the world. I thought they were could be as cocky as they wanted and they'd never get shut down. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. No one and nothing is outside of God's control. He dictates what nations rise, what nations fall. He dictates the future of America. If Jesus tarries, decides not to return in our lifetime, may he bring a revival that we would actually be useful to him. I would suggest to you to keep an eye on South Korea. Why? Because they're kind of what we used to be. They love Jesus a lot. They have the fastest growing, biggest exploding Christian church. They're incredible. Right now, they're nobodies. But what if God decides to blow wind into their sails and raise them up on the world circuit because they're the ones that are honoring him? I don't know. All I know is that God dictates the future of this planet. He dictates the future of this world. So as much as many of us are nervous about, well, this nation says they're going to do this and this one defies God and this one. You think God hasn't dealt with that since the dawn of creation? He can handle it. He knows what's going on, and he's 8,000 steps ahead of all of us. Amen? Amen. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 20, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 20, verse 1. It's page 582 in the Bibles and the seat in front of you. And I'll just give you a little heads up on where we're walking into. We continue on in God's judgment on the nations around Israel. But not only does it track with them, because remember, it started out with judgment on his own people, then it radiated out to the nations around, but even in today's message, we'll see it radiate beyond that into what is known as Isaiah's apocalypse, talking actually about the end of the world. There is so much loaded in this book. It is similar to John the Revelator's Revelation. Or some of the other views of the end times in Daniel. Things like that. We'll read about some of that. We will cover six chapters together. Of course, that allows for a lot of paraphrase and then reading, right? So I'm going to jump back and forth if you guys can track with me. And then I also need to give you one quick reminder. When he writes about these nations and the judgment, it is not chronological. It is thematic. That means... Well, when did that happen? Didn't that happen? When he addresses a nation, he says, I will be dealing with this nation in general throughout history like this. A lot of it was fulfilled in Isaiah's day. A lot of it was fulfilled about a hundred years after Isaiah. Some of it was fulfilled 2000 years later. Some of it was fulfilled in the future to be. So, we need to remember that even though we're tracking on all this, and some of it is rooted in history, some of it also is rooted in the future. And then the last thing, why would God be telling Judah about all the other nations? Why do they need to know that information? Who cares? That's not their problem. Whatever you do with Edom, whatever you do with Arabia, whatever you do, who cares? Just go ahead and do it. Because, like us, it was a massive community where everybody involved everybody else. 
And right at the time that Isaiah was writing, Judah was under massive pressure because of Assyria, the empire crushing on them to make treaties. And every time God said, do not trust in other nations, trust in me. Do not trust in other countries to save you. They will get destroyed too. Trust in me. The reason for accounting for all their judgment is to remind them that only God is trustworthy. Only God is solid. Only God is immovable. So Israel, keep your eyes on me. We begin in chapter 20, verse 1. If we could throw up the map here on all the different things that I'm going to be sharing with you today, they're all located here on the map. You can see we'll be referring to Assyria, which is the primary empire that is in play at this time. We'll talk about the city of Babylon, which is under Assyrian control, but the Babylonians still live there. There is the whole area where Judah is. Now remember, the north, by the time we get to this part in the story, the north has already been taken out by the Assyrians. They wiped them out. And they attacked all the way down into the south. And then they pulled back. We talk about the Philistines and Ashdod is where we're going to begin. So let's go ahead and read and see what God has for us. It says this, In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, meaning Sargon II, the king of Assyria, he came to Ashdod, fought against it, captured it. All right, pause. What's so great about these types of phrases is we can root it in history. We know when this happened. There are other extra biblical records that lock in when this occurred. So what occurred? Sargon II from Assyria heard that all the little guys were making coalitions against him to try to rebel, try to revolt. Well, what happens if you're the big dog and all the little guys are trying to fight back against you? You go in and you crush them. That's the way it works. So he swept into the Philistine land, went to one of their significant cities known as Ashdod, and destroyed it. That happened in 711 B.C. after a three-year siege. When that happened in 711 B.C., Isaiah got a word from God. At that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist. Take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said to Judah, As my servant, the one who carries out my will, Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for parts of three years. As a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they, any partners that ever trusted in them, shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of Egypt their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, This is what happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. How shall we escape? There's a bunch of stuff that we just read there. Remember, as this coalition is trying to rebel and Assyria is crushing them, they want to get help from other big dogs. So they look downward. If you look down in the map, you see Egypt and Cush. Judah was tempted to make a treaty with them and say, back us up, man. We got to we got to get the bad guys. 
God said, don't you dare do that. They'll take them out too. And as a sign of how they will be let out in chains, humiliated, naked. And what they would do to humiliate men in the Middle East is that they would shave their heads, they'd rip out their beards, and because they wore long flowing robes, they'd cut it off at the waist so they'd be naked from the waist down. So they were exposed to everybody. That type of humiliation, later on some nations would put rings through their nose like animals, and they would lead them out. He said, because I need you to have a visual understanding of what it's going to look like and why you cannot trust in any other nations, I'm going to have Isaiah look like that for three years. So here's the call. Isaiah, yes, Lord. I have a job for you. Yes, sir. What's that? need you to take off your pants. What's that? Take off your pants. All righty. For how long? Three years. What? What do you mean three years? Like to do what? I don't know. Walk around the city and stuff. You got to return at Walmart or something like that that you can do. You know, just kind of be out and about. You know, Lord, that's embarrassing. That's humiliating. No, I don't want to do that. But he did it. And God said, do this. Now, it is most likely, most scholars believe that he was not completely naked. It was that he went down to his underwear, which was humiliating in that day. Possible loincloth, right? So everyone is going to be staring at him. That's the point. What an unusual call of God. Let me give you a personal story. Happened to me on Wednesday. On Wednesday, I was just beginning this cold. Things were feeling pretty bad. I woke up kind of feeling like I've been hit by a truck and I had been out late Tuesday night before that. And so I didn't get up to do my prayer time in the exact same way. And so I had to go do my prayer time once I did get up. So I showered and I, I got up and I got out of the house to go pray. And I went to Starbucks. I went to Starbucks up in El Dorado Hills, found a little corner where I could hide. And I was going to have my hour long devotional prayer time. And it really kind of started like a lot of my prayer time start, which is, Lord, I feel miserable. Lord, I don't know if I want to pray today. Lord, you know, and it was just kind of whining and complaining and, and just kind of, you know, I don't really have anything to say. You know, whatever. It was just all immature talking. It took me about 40 minutes to get into the groove. 40 minutes into it, all of a sudden, I'm finally tracking. Now, I don't always get a chance to track like this, but this was kind of a, a blessing of God. 40 minutes into it, I start getting into a chill groove with God where I'm saying, God, I I feel right now. And I prayed this, literal words. I was so in this calm place that I said, Heavenly Father, I surrender to you. Jesus, I surrender to you. Holy Spirit, I surrender to you. And I don't know if you have had this experience or not, but... I always kind of picture that idea of just laying back and being cut free where you go, you know what, God, whatever, bring it. I'm all in. Go ahead. I was there for about maybe 90 seconds in this cool space of, ah, I'm all in with God. All of a sudden, I kid you not, comes a thought. It comes in like a windstorm. Get up, clear your throat, get everyone's attention in Starbucks, 
and start preaching and we'll have a revival right here. Holy cow. You guys, I went from this to, oh my gosh, no, 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 right? That was there. There's no way in the world I was doing that. There is not a possibility. You guys, I locked up so fast. I was like hanging on and I, this is how it felt. I know some of you people are neurotic. You know what I mean? Is that have you ever been on the top of a building looking down and you go, oh my gosh, I'm going to jump. Oh my gosh, I have to jump. I got to jump. I got to jump. I got to jump. And you don't know why, but something's like, uh, pushing you. That's how I felt. I felt like, oh my gosh, he's going to make me stand up. There's nothing I can do about it. He's going to make me stand up. He's going to make me. And so I was holding on and I had my eyes tight and I was like, no, go away, go away, go away, go away, go away. And I was like, I was like, hang on, hang on, hang on. And then eventually it began to subside. I was like, ha, 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 ha. And I was like, I was like, Lord, I've had promptings before. They were wrong. You need to give me confirmation for something like that. There is no way I'm going. It's one thing if you would ask me to go talk to those people at that table. It's a whole nother thing to shut down all Starbucks revenue so that I can be hauled away going. But God told me to. And I'm now I'm in jail. I was like, I am not doing that. Right. So one of the drags about working with Christians is that I come into work the next day. And I'm talking to Joanne, right, my assistant. And I said, Joanne, here's the story. And she looks at me and she goes, well, maybe those people in Starbucks had less time than they knew. I'm like, thanks. <laughs> that, that didn't help. You know, and now all I can picture is front page news, right? Gas leak explosion destroys all of Starbucks. Where was someone to preach to them? Thanks, Lance. Right. Here, here's the reality of the situation. The reality of the situation was God said, Isaiah, I want you to walk naked. He said, yes, sir. He says, Lance, I want you to talk to the people at Starbucks. And I said, no. Does that mean he asked you somebody else? I mean, I don't, I don't know if it was God's prompting or not. But shouldn't I have erred on the other side? Shouldn't I have been the faithful one? Shouldn't I have been like I had just prayed, surrendered? I wasn't. I wanted to be surrendered, but I wanted to make sure that I still had control. Unfortunately, that story is an embarrassment. God couldn't use me that day. Chapter 21, verse 1. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. What's the wilderness of the sea? It's Babylon. For a bunch of boring reasons. We don't care. Move on. As whirlwinds in the Negev, that's the southern desert region of Israel. As whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, Elam. Lay siege, O Media. All the sighing she has caused, I bring to an end. Therefore, my, meaning Isaiah's loins, he said, are filled with anguish. 
I paraphrase, like labor pains, I'm dismayed, verse 5. They prepare the table, they spread the rugs, they eat, they drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. For thus the Lord said to me, go set a watchman, which meant Isaiah himself in the vision. Paraphrasing, watch for activity in Babylon, so Isaiah watched every day. Verse 9, and behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods. He is shattered to the ground. Oh, my threshed and winnowed one, meaning Judah, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the warrior God, the God of Israel, I announce to you. What did you just hear? You heard a judgment against Babylon, but a warning to Judah. Here's why. In 722 BC, around the same time that the north was destroyed, there was an uprising in the city of Babylon. Remember, I told you it was under Assyrian control. A Chaldean prince by the name of Merodach Baladan rose up, got support from the Elamites, support from the Medes, and marched an army in and took over the city of Babylon for the Babylonians. Now you can imagine any time there's a revolt like that and there's a throwing off of Assyria, everybody in the little groups over here by the sea, they all get excited. So now Israel and Judah, they're starting to throw a party. Yeah, the guys that blew up our north, now they're getting taken over. Now we got a city back. I don't know who this leader is, but praise God, Assyria, take that, right? Now, now we're getting somewhere. Now you're going to throw off the noose. Now we can relax. Isaiah said, no, we can't. Not even close. You know what I see in my vision? Here come riders. They're going to crush that resistance. They're going to rise up again. They'll crush them again. Indeed, 12 years later, once they got the leadership focused, Assyria came in, retook Babylon, kicked them out. Five years later, the Assyrian king dies, so the guy runs back in, takes it over. Two years later, crush him again, and he's gone. Don't trust in other nations, and do not think you're just going to get away with it. Oh, look, everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. No, it's not going to be fine. You know why? Because God is saying it's not going to be fine. Verse 11 and 12 is a very short prophecy against the nation of Edom. He said, but it says the oracle concerning Duma. It is believed by most scholars that Duma is Idumea, which is another name for Edom. Edom are all Esau's descendants. All he says in those short verses is, although you think you're going to get a break, more night is to come. In verse 13... He takes up the oracle concerning Arabia. We're talking about way south, Saudi Arabia. Remember, the Ishmaelites became the Arab nations. There was so much war that has always happened between Ishmael's descendants and Isaac's descendants. But here is an oracle concerning Arabia. I paraphrase. He said, you will go into hiding when the Assyrians overrun you in 715 BC by King Sargon II. Within a year, you will be shut down. You know, it's interesting, just as a side note, Arabia is pretty far away. I mean, you can see it on the map. It's kind of out there by itself. 
You know, a lot of times we think that in the Bible, God is only concerned about the nation of Israel. I've shared with you before that he is not. He is concerned about all of his creation. He is working with other nations throughout the whole world. And we think, unfortunately, we try to make that personal and we think that God only pays attention to the people on the front page of the paper. Man, if I want God to be with me, I got to have a big ministry. I got to be in front. I got to be famous. I got to be this. And then he'll pay attention to me. That is not true. God reads the entire paper. God reads the small print just as much as he reads the front page. Why? Because he wrote it. He knows it. He is not going to skip over you. If you are a child of God, Jesus Christ has died for your sins. Therefore, when you go before your Lord Jesus, he is going to recount that which you will receive reward for. And he didn't miss anything. He will see every resistance to temptation. He will see every time you said no to sin and yes to God. He will see every time you did what the Holy Spirit prompted you to do. He will see every time that you said yes, Lord. And he will come up and look you in the face and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. It doesn't matter if the world saw it or not. I saw it. I got you. Well done. Chapter 22, verse 1. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What is that? That is Judah, where Isaiah lived. All right? So now we're back into God's people. I paraphrase. Why are you so happy? Your leaders are faithless. Isaiah said, I can't even look at you while I'm crying because of the destruction coming. Terrible things are coming. In the day that they came to attack, you looked to your weapons, you prepared for a siege, you stockpiled in preparation, but look at verse 11. But you did not look to him who did it. You did not see him who planned it long ago. God called for repentance. You threw a party. You thought you were out of danger. You are not. How many of us use God as an afterthought? In 701 BC, when the Assyrians stormed the north, they got all the way up to the door of Jerusalem. They checked all their stockpiles, they changed the walls, they fixed that, they had a tunnel dug to where they could bring water in, Hezekiah's tunnel. They did everything, but check with God first. Is that our lives? Let me run a scenario by you and see if this is happening in your life. Here's a scenario you're entrepreneurial. You have a buddy in college. Your buddy in college calls you up one day and says, hey, haven't talked to you in a while. Yeah, hey, what are you up to? Nothing. What are you up to? Well, you know, I'm a Christian and everything. Really? Oh, it's good for you. That's cool. That's good. Hey, I had a real quick thing. Um, I'm starting a new business and I want you to be partners with me. It's going to be some cash you got to put into this thing, but here's the deal. Um, I've noticed that gold is continuing to go up, right? I mean, we've had, it was at one time down to $300 an ounce, man. Now it's like 1550 goes up to 1600 bucks an ounce. Well, here's what we're going to do. I have a way to buy gold cheap. I have a connection. And so as we buy gold cheap, we're going to go out and we're going to sell it and we're going to make tons of cash. Well, you immediately know this world market and you're going, you know what? Actually, the more and more a dollar inflates, that's probably true. So you know what? I'm going to jump in on that. Absolutely. I'm, you bet. You sign the contract, you guys locked in, and things start going fantastic. Everything he said is legit. It's going, going, going. But along the way, 
You're getting more and more of being a workaholic and everything. Now you're kind of locked into this, and you got a lot of money. You don't see your family very much, and eventually you're just kind of frustrated. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the world situation changes. Gold drops to $400 an ounce, and you have brought in all these investors, and you owe everybody. Everything falls apart. What are you going to do? Well, if you're a Christian, here's what you're going to do. You're going to pray about it, right? Oh, God, I don't want to lose everything. God, I don't want to lose my house. I don't want to lose everything. I don't want to make the kids have to move. I don't want to have to do this. Now I have to disappoint everybody that was involved. God, you've got to get me out of this jam. Right? Here's the problem. God never wanted you in that partnership in the first place, and you never even asked him. It was a no-brainer, right? The Bible says, do not be yoked with unbelievers. You partnered with your buddy. He doesn't even know Jesus. You started off on the wrong foundation. But you never even bothered to ask. It was too easy and too obvious. You never asked if it was the right thing to do. Now you're in a jam that you never should have been in. You're way out in left field and you say, God, fix it. You know what? I don't want to fix it. I want to blow it up because you never asked me. You never tracked with me the whole time. You always come in at the end and I'm supposed to save you and I'm supposed to rubber stamp your stuff. Guess what? I don't do that. You're done. Hmm. Chapter 23, excuse me, 22:15. I'll just paraphrase this one. Go and say to the head of the palace in Judah, a man named Shebna, tell him what you think. You're so secure in your job that you bought a great tomb here. You're going to die in exile. I will replace you with Hilkiah, a better man. I will secure him in your role. But even as good as he is, my judgment will still come and he will not be able to hang in there. What do we learn from that? Why does God always have to pass us up to use somebody who's more faithful? Why did I have to respond the way I did on Wednesday so God would have to, if he really needed to move in that Starbucks, why did he have to use someone else and not me? Why are we not the ones God can use? Why are we always passing it off and somebody with more faith, somebody that's willing to go out on a limb for Jesus, that he has to tap them on the shoulder? He's still asking us, praise God. Unfortunately, we're still saying no. Chapter 23, verse 1. The oracle concerning Tyre. That was founded in 2700 B.C. This is an ancient city. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or without harbor. I paraphrase. Everyone will lament your falling due to your trade and benefit to them. Who has done this? It's God. You will be humbled. Pick it up in verse 15. In that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years. Like the days of one king, verse 17, at the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. What? It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. Well, that's a weird prophecy. Between the prophecy here. And the ultimate demise of Tyre in 322 B.C. by Alexander the Great, Tyre will be sieged five times. Tyre is famous because it was kind of like the rich guy who's the connector on the streets who can get you anything you want. You know what I mean? You know, everybody likes that guy. They all think he's kind of slimy, but everyone likes that guy because he gets you your addiction. 
He's always like, what do you need? What do you need? I got you. What do you need? You give me this. I'll get you that. Everything. I got it for you. What do you need? Right? He's that guy. Tyre has been an ancient city. Not very big. It has a mainland city. And then 500 yards out into the ocean is an island. That's their main city. Nobody can take them. As much as they siege it, it wasn't ultimately destroyed till Alexander the Great. Why? It's hard to take an island. Every time you get near it, they can just bomb you out from their walls. You can't take the city of Tyre. So it lasted for a really long time. They were the Phoenician people, Tyre and Sidon. They were all over the world doing merchandise and trade. And so that's why it was so fantastic in 322 how Alexander took it. If you remember this story, it's one of the greatest strategies of all time. He said, what do you mean I can't take it? I'm Alexander the Great. Watch this. Tear down that city, that city, that city, grab all the stuff, throw it all in the water, and we'll make a bridge. I'll take it. He built a land bridge 500 yards long, stormed it, and took it out. And it's never been the same ever since. In Isaiah's day, there was a time from 700 to 630 B.C., which for 70 years, the Assyrians shut down their trade. What's the point? I don't care how wealthy you are, I will take you out too. It says this. Chapter 24, verse 4. Uh, excuse me, 24, verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Doesn't matter who you are, verse 3. The earth will be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. I paraphrase the rest. Joy will leave. There will be no more parties for desolation has come, but no one gets it. They all try to pretend they can carry on their lives. But I say, woe is us, Isaiah said. Judgment is coming for God will strike the earth like he did in the days of Noah with the flood. He will even hold angels accountable. We pause there. What's he talking about? That's Isaiah's apocalypse. That is the end of the world. Why is judgment coming on the earth? Because of sin. Whose fault is that? Mankind. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he said, I want you to manage it and steward it and do well. That's my stuff. How have we done so far? Dismal. Look at the world around us. How much have we raped, pillaged, leached? stolen everything out of our world i'm not just talking about physically which we have done that with pollution and all the garbage that we've done to our world i'm talking about morally we have bankrupt what god told us to manage even though we ought to do better in our world and i believe the church is called to lead that charge here's the one place that we can control god gave you this to steward what are you doing with your body what are you doing with your heart? What are you doing with your life? What are you doing with your spiritual walk? This is your Eden. Manage it well. We finish in verse 15 with the best part of the whole passage. Oh, Lord, you are my God. Meaning when he wraps everything up and everyone finally sees him as he is. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. 
You had plans formed of old, faithful, and sure before the foundations of the world. You have made the city of mankind's pride a heap. The fortified city of ruin, the foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you because you're stronger. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you because you're more ferocious. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. God will swallow up, verse 8, death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Where have you heard this before? Revelation. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And I paraphrase, and God will shut down the arrogant of this earth, and he will be glorified. No one and nothing is outside of the control of God. He has written the end. You can't write the end unless you know how it's all going to work out. And you can't know how it's all going to work out unless you're the one that's going to get it there. Fear not that the world is out of control. It is not. It is under the control of our God. If you could throw up the closing challenge on the screen, let me close with this. This week, here's your challenge. I don't care whether it's online, on the newspaper, in a magazine, wherever it is, on an app. I want you to read it with a lens that God is in charge. I want you to see every news article that if there's bad guys... God will hold them accountable. If there's good guys, God sees it. If there are nations that would reject God, God knows that as well, and he can handle it. And if there are nations that are falling, some he will revive and some he will decimate. But just know this, our God is king. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for a beautiful walk in your word. Thank you for giving us uh, words in anticipation of the future that, Lord, we know you are in control. We believe it with all our heart. We know that you are mighty. We know that you are awesome. So, God, may we settle under the shadow of your wings. May we gather close to you and know that near you is protection and safety. Lord, if you want to bring correction into our lives, would you let us know when it is you that we might submit ourselves under it? That which is from the enemy, we ask that as Satan asked to sift Satan, uh, as Satan asked to sift Peter like wheat, Jesus, you said that you'd pray for him. We ask that you'd pray for us. That Lord, we would not fall to our temptations. We would not fall to our wickedness. Keep us strong and mighty that we might say yes, Lord, every day, immediately, in Jesus' name. Amen.